Shalom. This is Gary Duroshinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. Listen, if you have your Bibles, open with me to Mark chapter 4. As I have been uh, reflecting on all of the things going on in the world, even though to some degree things in the Middle East appear to have cooled down a little bit, at least with regard to Israel and the Gaza Strip. But then when you think of what's going on among uh, in ISIS, and what's going on in Iraq, and all that is transpiring there, uh, it is overwhelming, isn't it? It's undaunting. And then when you think of things that are going on in your own personal life, whatever trials and challenges that are you know, sort of invading our space. I couldn't help but think about this passage and wanted to share some of my thoughts with you. While we were on vacation in Boston and then in Annapolis, a number of people sharing with me various passages, primarily from the Psalms, and indicating their prayers for me and their prayers for our congregation. And this is a passage that I began to reflect on, and let me share some thoughts with you. In Mark chapter 4, Verse 35, it says, That day when evening came, he, Yeshua, said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Yeshua was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. You know, this is a passage that is, or an event that's recorded by all three of the synoptic gospel writers, Mark, Matthew, and Luke. All three of them record this. You can look at it in Mark, uh, Mark 4, but you can see it in Matthew and Luke chapters 8 and 8. Matthew 8 and and Luke chapter 8. It's also a passage that reflects or at least focuses attention on the power of Messiah. We sang about that this morning, about the power of Messiah. Not only does it focus on the power 
of Messiah, but it also focuses to some degree on the weakness of the disciples. And one thing that also stands out in this passage is Messiah's posture. All three of them focus on these three things. The power of Messiah, the weakness of the disciples, and the sleep of Messiah. All of them speak about him sleeping. Did you know this is the only passage in all the gospel records that record Yeshua sleeping? I didn't realize that until I was studying this passage. There's no other place where you read about him sleeping. You'll read about him walking, you'll read about him eating, you'll read about him praying. But this is the only passage we read of him sleeping. And so as I think about what's going on in this text, let me share with you some thoughts about the power of our Messiah. First of all, look at some of the details that come out of this passage. It says that day, of course, that raises the question, what day? And it says, that day when evening came. So turn back in chapter 4 to the beginning of this chapter. Because there we begin to see what was going on today, or that day. Again, it says, Yeshua began to teach by the lake. So now we know what was happening. The beginning of the day, Yeshua is by the Sea of Galilee. He's roaming around the lake, and he's teaching by the lake. And look what it says. Crowds gathered around him. And those crowds were so large that he then decided maybe the best way to speak to the crowd so they can all hear me is to get into a boat, come offshore a little ways so that everyone now can gather along the shore and I can speak to the masses. So now I'm sort of imagining how this is happening. And by the way, what he teaches them about are various parables. In fact, we're told that he speaks to the crowds in parables, but then afterwards he sits down with the disciples and he explains the meaning of the parable. So he told them in this context the parable, for example, of the sowing of the seed, which symbolized the word of God and the different soil upon or ground upon which the seed might fall. He tells us this parable of a lamp that is to be put on a stand. He talks about the parable of the growing seed as it is uh, placed into the ground. And then we're to and the and the parable of the mustard seed. And so I'm imagining how this is happening because if you've ever been on a boat or on a boat that is a large rowboat type of boat because this was a boat that all 12 disciples could get into. So it was probably about a 20-footer. I owned a 24-foot sailboat at one time, and as I was trying to think about how I might arrange 12 people on a boat, I would think that their boat was probably somewhere around 20 feet in length. But if you know anything about boats, and especially boats in the ancient world and on the Sea of Galilee, their keels, that which goes into the water, were not very deep. The deeper the keel, the more stable the boat, and therefore you could get into the ocean or into various places that might be more difficult for smaller boats to endure. So, but this is the Sea of Galilee, and the keels on these boats were not very deep. 
So they're fairly unstable. So how do you start teaching when a boat is on water that's rocking and you're keeping your balance? And if you've ever spent all day on a boat, it is exhausting. You might not think it is because you're just kind of sitting there allowing the wind to sort of come on your body and you're enjoying all that's there. But I'm telling you that when you try to walk on a sailboat, you don't feel it. But at the end of the day, as you're moving up and down the deck or you're going below or you're coming up or you're reaching over the side for something, when the end of the day comes, you start saying, man, I'm really tired, you know, and you're out under all the elements. And so there is Yeshua. He's in this boat that's rocking. Now, it tells us that he sat down in order to to teach. Now, in our passage, it says that he was asleep in the stern of the boat on a cushion. Evidently, the helmsman, the one who's got the tiller arm and the helm that steers the boat, had a place to sit and had a cushion upon which to sit. After all, he's going to be sitting the whole time while the other men are able to stand and hold on to things on the boat. So for him, it's a little more difficult, so they give him a cushion. And he's able to sit in the back of the boat. That's the stern for you landlubbers. But the back of the boat, holding on to the tiller arm, ready to steer the boat where it would go, but it still wouldn't solve the rocking. So I imagine that perhaps along the sides of the boat, there were some of the disciples standing, maybe with their oars placed into the the, uh, soil below or the ground below the water and were holding on to those oars so that the boat wouldn't rock so much and the boat would be stable. And Yeshua sits and he teaches all day. So when we look at chapter 4, verse 35, it says, Now when evening comes, he says to his disciples, Let's go on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And look what it says, and the details are so interesting. He says, first of all, leaving the crowd behind as they set sail, as it were. It says they took him along just as he was. That's pretty impressive, pretty telling, isn't it? I mean, he didn't get off the boat. He didn't change. Just as he was sitting in the boat at the stern on the cushion, he begins to leave with them as they set sail to cross the Sea of Galilee to the other side. It says that there were other boats that were around. So there were fishermen that were working during the morning hours, Maybe they now anchored their boats, came on shore. Now it's toward the end of the day. They're getting back in their boats, and maybe again they're doing some work there. Maybe they're repairing some things. But they're out in the boats, and there are other boats that are anchored, moored, somehow are out in the sea as they're making their way from the shore. It says also that Yeshua was in the stern, that he was sleeping, that he was on a cushion. What's interesting to me in all of this are the details that Mark, who is the amanuensis or the secretary for Peter, the disciple, as he's writing all of these details. And what that suggests is that this is a true story. You know, this is somebody recounting what they had experienced, and Peter was one of those on board. And so as he reflects back, on what transpired, it's almost like we can look at his mind as he was remembering what had happened. Remember, Luke was not an eyewitness, so he's writing for us about what people had told him. Matthew certainly was on board, and he 
writes his account. But Mark is very specific, very detailed. Because what is about to transpire really did happen. It's not written like a legend or written like a story or written like an imaginary tale. It's really written like someone experienced what was here. And so at the front end, what it made me think of, especially at this time in my own ministry here, is that the power of the Lord is really available to us here and now. Just as we're going to see the unfolding of his power in this boat on the Sea of Galilee, where Peter and the other disciples experienced it, with all of the details that are contributing to his account of what happened, it makes me think that whatever details are going on in the crucible of my life, the power of Messiah is available as well. He's available, it is available to us here and now because his power is a real power that is present today as it was yesterday. We oftentimes read these stories, read these accounts, read these records, and we reflect upon what Yeshua had done. But what we need to remember is that these accounts are written so that we would be encouraged with respect to what Yeshua continues to do in our midst. And so I appreciated Gay Ellen expressing how Messiah showed up miraculously for her. For some of us, we might think, that doesn't seem like anything particularly significant or out of the ordinary or extraordinary. But for Gay Ellen, it was an answer to many prayers. For Gay Ellen, it was a manifestation of God's presence in a great time of need. And thus God shows up in the here and now, even as he showed up in the past and then. A second thing that strikes me about this, and we read about, we sang about this, that the power of our God is uncontainable and untamable. Now think about this. As they begin to go offshore, it says in verse 17, a furious squall came up. Now, the Sea of Galilee, I didn't know this till I read a, not really an article, I don't know what you would call it, Ron, but facts about the land of Israel and the Jewish people. But among those facts was that the Sea of Galilee is the largest fresh water is the lowest fresh lo fresh water lake in the world it is 700 feet below sea level now the dead sea is 1500 feet below sea level so you can see how the jordan valley sort of slants down but the sea of galilee i had read was 700 feet below sea level the largest the the largest fresh water lake uh, the lowest freshwater lake in the world. Because it is lowest, and to the north is Mount Hermon, which rises about 9,000 feet above sea level, Big Bear and Lake Arrowhead are about 7,000 feet above sea level. 
Mount Hermon is about 9,000 feet above sea level. And as the winds, particularly in the evening, because as the, uh, during the day, the, the land heats up and water is warmer than the land. So in the morning, water is warmer than the land. As the sun comes up, the land begins to gain heat. And as it gains heat, and as the heat in the water offshore, here the Mediterranean Sea, cools down, the land, the heat on the land sucks the air and the moisture toward itself. So what happens on the Sea of Galilee is as the Mediterranean begins to cool down, the land begins to warm up, it pulls the air from the Mediterranean through the canyons of Mount Carmel, through the valley of the Jezreel Valley, over to the Sea of Galilee, and in an instant, a squall can arise on the sea. Unpredictable unplanned for, and can be extremely violent. I don't know if you've ever been in a squall, but as I was learning to sail with my sailing buddy Brian, we used to say as we were reading about all these storms on the sea, and we said, you know, one of these days we're going to get caught in one. So it might be best to start training, what do we do when a storm hits? So for months, we would read about what do you do in a storm, and then we would have our different posts and positions, and we would practice it, you know, in nice weather. We would practice it so that we knew what we were supposed to do. My job was to rush onto the deck to the bow of, of our boat and to begin to pull down our headsail or our jib in the front, our headsail and bring it down, and then tie it off on our lifelines to make sure that there's not a lot of sail up so that the winds don't take control of the boat and turn it over or destroy it in some way. Brian's job, because he was smarter than I and picked that job, was to, was to stay in the cockpit and to man the tiller arm so that the boat stays faced in to the wind and doesn't get spun around. So we would practice this, and we would go through the routine, and we would do it in a moment's notice. And so one day we were watching the weather forecasts, and they were calling for squalls all up and down the Severn River and on into the Chesapeake Bay. And we talked to each other on the phone. We said, you know, it's better to pick our squall than the squall to pick us. So we said, Let's head out and see how this works. So here the boats are going in, and we've got our little 10-horsepower engine <laughs> bringing our boat out into the middle of the Chesapeake Bay. And we saw the squall coming down from the Severn River. There were some big boats out there, 36-footers and so on, and we could see them. All of a sudden, the squall would hit. The boat would heel over. So much so, you could actually see the bottom of the boat. And you could see the sails because they had not brought them down. The sails were coming all the way down. And we wondered, oh my goodness, what did we do? We put on our wet gear. And Brian said, you know, it might be good for you to get up on the bow of the boat. So there I am on the bow of the boat watching this thing coming down. I'm working the sail. I'm getting it down. I'm tying it. I'm looking like this. And I'm saying, Brian, you got his pointed? He said, yeah. And he said, hold on. I held on to the mast. And that thing just went, whoosh. I mean, it just swept right through us. I had all my wet gear on. 
when I took it, I was sopping wet. Somehow all the water came up through the leggings, up through, I was just soaked. But the sun shined, our boat still floated. And we looked at each other and said, wow, we did it, you know. And now we weren't afraid to hit other storms. We knew we could manage if we got our act together. These were seasoned fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. When this furious squall hit. The word furious, by the way, is the word seismus. We get the word earthquake from that. This was a squall like no other squall that was like an earthquake that just banged onto the Sea of Galilee and smashed into their boat. The word Luke uses is a word that denotes dark, foreboding, thunderous clouds and lightning and turbulent waves. From Mark's account, we know the waves were turbulent because they were filling the boat. And these guys were seasoned sailors, and I can just imagine what they're doing because Bill used to say, there is no greater panic than watching a sailor bail for his life. And these guys must have been bailing and bailing and bailing, trying to keep the water out, trying to keep the bow into the front of the boat, trying to keep the sail down, not to be overwhelmed. And they were losing the battle against the storm. And there were 12 of them. This was a powerful act of nature on the Sea of Galilee on this moment. And what is remarkable is that Messiah is sleeping through it. His head is on the cushion, and he's asleep. Now, I can sleep through some pretty intense things. In fact, Mary Lou will tell you, when we were in Israel, a Katusha rocket had hit Kiryat Shimona up in the north near the Lebanese border where we were staying. Woke her up, I was asleep didn't go off, it just landed. And then the IDF or security forces came into that courtyard area. And with blow horns, they were saying, everybody open the windows, because they didn't know if it would go off and they didn't want the concussion to just shatter all the windows. So open the windows. Mary Lou was by the window. I guess she was opening finally. She roused me and she said, you see what's going on out here? I said, no, what's going on? I come to the window. I said, wow, what's with all the soldiers? She said, a rocket just landed right there. I said, really? I didn't hear it. So I could sleep through some pretty neat things, some pretty hard things, not neat things, but pretty hard things. But I don't think I could sleep through this. And now here's the thing that strikes me too. Yeshua doesn't even wake up. The thing that wakes up Yeshua is the voice of his disciples. That's what raises him up. That's what rouses him. Now think about this. When you need to wake people up who will not get up, how do you do it? Sometimes you shake them. Well, that boat was shaking pretty good because the waves are going crazy. He's not waking up. Sometimes, especially if you're in camp, you just get some water on him. He just dumps some water on him. That didn't wake Yeshua up either because the boat is filling with water so much so that they're saying, we are drowning. We are in the process of perishing. We're about to go down for the third count. And so the water is all over him. But that's not waking him up either. Sometimes it's noise that wakes us up. So we have an alarm bell. But you know, noise wasn't waking up Yeshua either. 
because those winds were creating all kinds of noise. That thunder was causing all kinds of bangs and booms and blasts in the skies. Sometimes when you want to wake somebody up, you just shine a light, put the light on. But the lightning bolts that were hitting on the Sea of Galilee couldn't wake Yeshua up either. There was only one thing that could wake him up, and that was the voice of his disciples crying out for salvation. So here's the thing about the power of our Messiah. Like I said, it's for us today as it was for them of yesterday. But it's, an, it's also a power that is infinite in scope. It's a power that is omnipotent in nature. It's a power that is indescribable. A power that is uncontainable. A power that is untamable. Because when they rouse him by their cries for mercy, the way he solves the problem is so simple. It's so simple. He says two words in Greek. Be quiet, be still, and be quiet. That's all he says. Two words. Now I can tell you that in most instances when a person is going to come to the rescue, you know, They'll say, stand back. <laughs> Watch what I'm about to do, you know. Or in some of, the, some of the movies or things we watch, you know, there'll be all kinds of ways that people draw attention to themselves in terms of how they will bring about the rescue. But Yeshua is so simple and somewhat innocuous in what he does. He says two words. Be quiet and be still. When he said, be quiet, he was speaking to the wind. When he said, be still, he was speaking to the waves. When he said, be quiet, the Greek word is the word that's used for muzzling a dog to shut their mouths. <laughs> he just muzzled them, muzzled the wind. Muzzle the sounds. And it gets pshht, quiet. When he said, be still, it's a very unique Greek tense that's in that phrase. It means, be quiet, be still, and stay still. It's the words you would say, some have said, to a dog or a child. While nature to us is extremely foreboding and powerful to Messiah, it's like a dog or a child. Sit down, be quiet. I didn't have to use that tone of voice with my students too much, but on occasion, sit down, be quiet. And they sat down, and they were quiet. But Yeshua could say that to wind, and he could say that to water. And when he said it to water, it's quite amazing when I think of myself in the amount of time I've spent on the water. I wish I've spent more time, but I've spent a good amount of time. But you all know that when a storm moves through, there are still waves that keep coming until things resolve. But not here. Here it becomes 
in uh, nautical terminology, becalmed. It becomes a dead calm. There's no wind. It's as still as can be. I can remember at least one time we were in water that was like that. For us, it was unfortunate because we wanted the wind to take us through. But sometimes the weather wasn't cooperating and we would just sit and sit. And the only action was from our boat that was caused by us walking or whatever. And here Yeshua just says, be quiet, be still, and the winds and the waves obey. So how did they get to the other side? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just be calm. How did they move? How did they, I guess they had to get the oars out. Now you can hear the complaining, you know, okay, we're glad there's no wind, but couldn't you have kept a little wind, you know? But it's all be calm. And it's still. But here's another thing about this passage that is really striking to me. As scared as the disciples were in the storm, they're more terrified now than they were before. Read the text. After they saw that the winds obeyed Messiah, it says they were terrified by his display of power. Because like we sang, the winds and the waves we can't contain we can't tame. We can't control. We can't manage. How much more so is it impossible to manage him? How much more difficult is it to contain our Messiah? You know, I mean, we can't contend the wind and the waves, but this one is out of our league. And therefore, we can't even identify as we are. But then Messiah says this. See, if it was me, I'd say, listen, guys, you did pretty good, though. I mean, that was a really terrible storm. I understand the tension, the fears. You were scared. That's, that's typical of anybody. You did pretty good. But that's not what Messiah says. Messiah rebukes them for their lack of courage and for their fear. It says... Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Now, this is what I think. I think what Messiah is really disturbed about with his disciples is that if they had truly believed that he loved them, they would not have been scared. What they doubted was his goodness and kindness. Because they say, have you brought us out here to drown in the Sea of Galilee? Do you, look at Mark's account, do you not care about us? That you would lead us into this place? The fact of the matter is, a loving God can lead us into hard places. A loving God can take us to places we would rather not go. And unfortunately, we have no way of containing him or his will. It is for us to believe as he's asleep in the boat 
as we oftentimes think he is asleep on the watch when things are going bad for us. Where are you, Lord? Don't you care about me? Aren't you concerned for all of the fill in the blank that I'm dealing with? Why don't you care is an expression of why don't you really love me? Now, I thought about two things about the power of Messiah, and I'll close in two minutes. One is that his power is not merely his. He is power. He doesn't have power. He is power. So that wherever power is shared, it is granted, by him. The winds and the waves were only as powerful as he allowed them to be. And when it was time to cease, they ceased. Because ultimately, he is the one who is omnipotent, all-powerful. You and I have no power whatsoever. In fact, Yeshua said, without me, you can do nothing. And so why was the centurion, you can look at it in Matthew 8, same context as this story. Why was the centurion so greatly acknowledged by Messiah as a man of faith? Because he understood that Yeshua had all power and that he would use his power for good and not evil. And so what happened? He said, I'm a man that has power. I can command this and that. They do it. But you, you are all power. And therefore, you can heal my servant and he'll be healed, and you don't even need to be there. He understood Yeshua had all power, and he understood that he uses his power for good. And I thought of the account where Messiah is before Pilate. And Pilate says, don't you know I have the power to free you or crucify you? Yeshua says, you have no power unless it's given to you from above. So for me, as I think about this passage, I'm reminded that Messiah's power is for the here and now. I'm reminded that Messiah's power is something that is only used for good and for the good intentions and will that he has for me, for you, no matter where he may lead us, because in his love he can lead us to hard places. It reminds me as well that the power of my, our Messiah is not something I can control. It's something that is in his hands to disseminate and to dispense as he wills. And it's a power that is exercised in love. One last final point, because I want to bring out what Messiah has done for us, because when he sacrificed his life for us. He entered into the storm <clears throat> of all storms. And he carried our sin. <clears throat> and he carried our sorrows. And he carried our iniquities. And he carried our trespasses. And he went headlong <clears throat> into the storm that he might deliver us out of the ultimate storm that awaits each in every one of us. What we experience in this life may be disconcerting, but if we're not right with our Lord, the storm of eternity awaits us. But he has come 
that we might have life and have it more abundantly. Father in heaven, we thank you. And let me invite the ushers to come up. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace and your compassion and your mercy. Thank you for your great power. May you exhibit it in our lives. May you demonstrate it in our congregation. And may you make it manifest in our world. Do come alongside many of our brethren who are suffering in unimaginable ways in the Middle East. We pray for your hand of power to bring deliverance and to bring grace. Lord, we thank you for the gifts that your people are entrusting to Beth Ariel this morning. May you multiply them as you multiply the loaves and fishes. And may you grant our leadership wisdom as we use them wisely. May they be used for the furtherance of the good news in our world. And may it result in helping to lead others to faith that do not know you and to bring maturity of life to those who do. So guide us and, get, and be with us as we give unto you. For we pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.